Alphabet Boys is a podcast that takes you inside undercover investigations. In the second season, we've got an alphabet soup with the DEA, the CIA, and the FBI all mixed up in the same case. So you do personal security all over the world, and you had somebody call you and say, can you get grenades and guns for this guy in Colombia? Not, not certified. It's a mystery wrapped around an international arms deal. Listen to Alphabet Boys, wherever you get your podcasts. We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. I've reconciled myself a long time ago to the fact that if if my my books take long enough to write, mm-hmm. that if I were to literally try to forecast the future, the future would be here before I was done. And if I were to try to do any uh, any real revisions based on that, I'd probably never release a book. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Welcome back to Secrets and Spies. On today's episode, I'm joined once more by my good friend and fellow indie spy author, Stephen England. He's back to talk about his new novel, Soon Dies the Day, which is the 12th installment of his Shadow Warriors series. We take a look under the hood at how this novel evolved and discuss some of the timely geopolitical issues at work in the plot, specifically the German far right and infighting inside Russia's security services. So if that's of interest to you, do stick around. A couple housekeeping items before we start. I want to thank all of our supporters on Patreon for just $5 a month, supporters get access to a special show with Chris and I called Extra Shot that immediately follows our Espresso Martini episodes. You can find a link to that in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your podcast streaming app of choice. Each new review juices that algorithm and helps new listeners find the show. That's enough from me. Let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Stephen England, welcome back on the podcast, buddy. It's good to be back, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. So you have a new novel out. It's called Soon Dies the Day. It's the 12th installment of your Shadow Warrior series. Before we dive into that, if any listeners missed the episode with you and I a couple months ago, tell us a bit about yourself. So I, uh, I'm i a lifelong uh, history buff and a fan of all things uh, kind of military and political, and I eventually turned that into a love of thrillers and uh, writing them. I've been published since 2009 and working on the Shadow Warrior series. Uh, first installment of that was published uh, 12 years ago, actually, this past week, so... I've been working with this series for a good while now. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's it's great to have you back on. I uh, was very excited to get a chance to, to read this book. So it opens 
a bit with uh, Harry Nichols, who's your returning protagonist. Right. He's on the run. He's in hiding in Leipzig, Germany, where most of the action of this novel takes place. And he's captured by Andreas Muller, the head of German counterterrorism operations. And he's forced to infiltrate a cell of domestic terrorists. And we sort of yes. go from there. So give me a bit more color, a bit more detail about, about what we're looking at in this book. Yeah, so... Andreas Muller is a character that series readers will remember from the last installment, Wildcard, which was a prequel novel that took place about a decade, a little over a decade before uh, before this book takes place. We can get more into all of the timelines of things later if we uh, if we care of to. Uh, but that that uh, at that point in time, Muller was uh, a, kind of a mid-ranking uh, officer in uh, GSG nine. And uh, a bit more on the ground, and worked with Harry to disrupt a homegrown Islamic terror cell that was trying to carry out a terror attack against U.S. forces at Ramstein Air Base. And now we fat, now we flash forward over a decade, and the the two the positions of the two men have changed dramatically. Harry's no longer a representative of the United States government. He's no longer there to liaise with German forces, and he is a fugitive. And Muller, when you meet Muller in this at the beginning of Soon Dies the Day, he is prepping an assault team to go hit the apartment block where Nichols is waking up because yeah. he, he's he's been hiding he's been hiding there for several months after events unfolded in France the way they did in presence of my enemies. And somehow, and it's never really disclosed in the book how, the Germans have picked up on the fact that he is in the country. And they have decided to be that, quite naturally, that they don't want him running around loose. So Muller is prepping the team to go in and take him down. And it's one of these interesting things and something I've enjoyed playing with in the series quite a bit is that friendship only carries you... It's a world in which friendship only carries you so far. Because, sure, Muller and Nichols worked together a number of times through the years, including the time that uh, he uh, that's chronicled in Wildcard. But their professional loyalties and allegiances really do come before that type of personal uh, friendship. And Muller basically tells these people... The, the assaulters he's prepping to go in, look, take him alive if you can, but do what you need to do. The Americans aren't going to cry too many tears if he turns up right. dead. <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's interesting because Muller does become a very pivotal character in the story. And really, in a lot of ways, you see his friendship with Harry come through throughout the story. He's very much someone who's willing to He's willing to put faith in Harry's professionalism and his abilities more than most of the other Germans that are involved in running Harry as a undercover and officer into the cell. And yet, you do see that moment at the beginning of the book, and everything else that follows can be reconciled with that, where he's perfectly willing to... Uh, he's perfectly willing to put their friendship aside when he feels that the mission requires it. Great. So the two big themes, I guess, at play, subject matter kind of areas that are at play in this novel are the German far right, I guess the backlash to 
immigration, asylum, that kind of thing that we've seen kind of in the aftermath of the Syrian civil war and infighting in the Russian security services, which is topical (laughs) for reasons. Um, Why would you ever say such a thing? (laughs) Well, we'll dig into that um, in a bit. Um, So if, 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 if you will, uh, first thing I wanted to talk about is the German far right. So for a bit of real life background here, that I guess the the world of the story sort of plays off of. Um, in 2018, German federal criminal police uh, uncovered a plot by unknown KSK soldiers to murder prominent German politicians and carry out attacks against immigrants living in Germany. Earlier that same year, state prosecutors in Tübingen investigated whether neo-Nazi symbols were used at a farewell event, including members of KSK. And KSK is the German Special Forces Command. In 2020, the German defense minister announced that the unit would be partially disbanded due to growing far-right extremism within the ranks. And in a bit of a more, um, I I guess, uh, outlandish kind of plot, in 2022, <laughs> uh, I think you know where I'm going with this. In 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 yes, 2022, yes, uh, the end of last year, um, a German uh, aristocrat, I, I use the term lightly, uh, Prince Heinrich the Thirteenth was arrested for leading a plot to overthrow the German government. I kind of wish I had gone with that because that's the sort of thing that if I had written into a book, no one would believe it. But it happened in real yeah. life. So it, I kind of just wish I had gone for broke. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, I guess, settle on this world of the German far right specifically to explore? Well, it's interesting because. And I think we touched on this a little bit in uh, the last interview, but Soon Dies the Day is really a book I've been writing my way back to for over a decade. I wrote the first very rough takes of this book back in 2007-2008. And at that point, I had been working on Shadow Warriors for a few years. I had gone through my litany of that time of writing something and throwing it away, writing something and throwing it away. And finally landed on this story uh, that was kind of, it was a bit of kind of a historically based thriller with some, uh, a lot that, a lot to do with uh, World War Two and uh, aspects of that that might uh, kind of leach into the present day, as it were. And I settled upon uh, neo-Nazis as the bad guy, German neo-Nazis as the bad guys. And... Had a had a plot that uh, really centered a fair bit around Germany, although in that case, actually, it the book ended up in in the U.S. Uh, very little of the book survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things like Andreas Muller was uh, was part of the story at that point yep. in time. Nichols was the main character, and the antagonist remained the same. But when I finished that book, and it was one of the first books I had ever written that I was really happy with, it was also one of the first long books I'd ever written, which you can testify that that's not changed. (laughs) Uh, But really, once I had finished that book, I realized, okay, I think I've got a novel that I could actually write, I could actually publish, I could actually sell, but it's not a good starting point for Nichols. I, I have to explain how he got to this place, and... I, the 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 roads washed out behind me because I've pretty much decided none of those books were fit for print. So I had I had to go back and kind of figure out where he came from to get to that place and re reimagine and reinvent that. And that's really what I've been doing 
ever since. I published Pandora's Grave 12 years ago today, and that became really the introduction, reader's introduction to Harry. And ever since then, I've been writing my way back to the book that became Soon Dies the Day. It was probably about 2014, 2015 that I began to realize that that book that I'd been so proud of in 2008 was no longer publishable. And so where I'd had these grand visions of I will write Pandora's Grave, I will write Day of Reckoning, uh, Embrace the Fire and Presence of Mine Enemies were actually not planned originally. Uh, but I will write these books, and then I will get to the place where I have uh, the manuscript that I that's now called Soon Dies a Day. When that's done, I'll just that's gonna it's gonna be done, and I'm gonna release it in like six months, and this will all be this will all be grand and glorious. By the time 2014 2015 rolled around, I realized that was not going to happen. The series had and my writing had evolved so much that there was there was absolutely nothing I could do beyond a full a full rewrite. Yeah. And so I, I started working on that in 2018 and uh, into 2019, really actually starting uh, to write it. And here we are today, four years later, and that's, I mean, my special military operation to to get this book out uh, took a little longer than I suspected. Yeah, I know the feeling. Uh, but th- but that was, that was the, kind of the interesting part of this, is realizing as I went back to it, that this kind of uh, reborn German neo-Nazi threat that I had conceived of kind of out of clear, the clear blue in 2008, really looking at it and realizing, okay, this is, this is a lot more grounded in the real world, in the world of today, than it was when I first wrote this. Obviously, tons of changes to be made in how I, how I represented it, how I approached it. But really realizing that, okay, the world has changed in such a way and the forces out there are shifting in a way that this is a lot more realistic than it ever was when I first uh, first dreamed it yeah. up back then. Yeah. So there's a scene fairly early on in the novel. I'm I'm you know, thinking back to what we referenced earlier with this, uh, yeah. the neo-Nazi symbols in this, you know, farewell gathering for the uh, KSK uh, operators. There's in in the book. There's a scene fairly early on. Takes place at a bar outside of Hamburg. I believe the German <laughs> pronunciation. It, it translates to Patriots Bar. But there's yeah. various uh, paraphernalia. We'll say. Up on the walls, there's a, a flag that was on a Kriegsmarine destroyer from World War II. There's a Japanese Imperial battle flag. I think it's yeah. safe to say without giving too much away that there are elements of the German Special Forces community that are sort of sympathetic to this far-right cause that we see in the novel. What's interesting with that scene is that that scene was actually written from a video uh, on a, a, a bar that's frequented by the german far right in just the last few years Interesting. and I, I i was i was literally drawing all that detail of what ensigns were up on the wall and so forth i was watching the video and be like okay that one that one that yeah. one. okay we're gonna put those in the scene yeah. now those are the those are the details that really kind of make a difference um yeah so i guess over the course of the long gestation period of researching and and writing this book through various forms what did you sort of 
learn about the German far right, about these sort of neo-Nazi revanchist elements? Well, I think I think in a lot of ways I learned that as with a lot of these move, political movements today, it, it's very much a spectrum. And you see some of that in mm-hmm. the book. You see some people that are, are simply responding to the threat and what they see that should be done about it. Uh, some people are responding out of frustration with what they dislike of the government's response to it. Then you have others that are going down the full-blown uh, Nazi racial supremacy front. It's it's an interesting mix of people, even in the novel. That uh, I mean, there, there's a scene uh, there's a scene later in the novel between uh, Harry and one of the characters where Harry realizes that one of the leaders of uh, the plot is actually kind of uncomfortable with how many actual full-blown Nazis he has with him. Yeah. And Harry says something about it to him, and the guy's like, look, this threat is real, and I need every man I can put behind a gun. And basically, we'll deal with those other people once we win. And Harry keeps his mouth shut because he's undercover, but Harry thinks to himself, yeah, that works out really well, allying yourself with uh, these massively toxic elements in the belief that oh we'll manage to clear those out after we win now it ten- it tends to be the it tends to be the more moderate elements that get cleared out <laughs> yeah that's that's usually which i would not i wish i would not describe that character as moderate but by comparison <laughs> no yeah moderate is a, is a relative term yeah. moderate to to the alternative i yeah. guess um so what's your what's your take on these influences inside german special forces i mean how serious and pervasive is it i mean i think once obviously i have no insider information as far as uh as far as the german special forces i think once something's arisen to the level of you having to disband an entire unit of your elite troops it's probably gotten pretty bad uh i mean Mm -hmm. it, it is it was stunning to me because i i by the time most of that stuff actually started becoming public i was already in the middle of writing the novel and it, I started thinking about it. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. We've actually got non-fictional elements that do have the skill yeah. set that would be necessary to perpetrate a coup. Uh, now, clearly, they didn't have the operational security or else they wouldn't have ended up exposed and in, in German court rather than uh, standing in the Reichstag. Right. But still... It is a it is a pretty formidable thought to to reflect on. Just thinking, okay, the the German the German special forces are quite well trained, and there's no reason to believe that they couldn't carry out the type of operation that's described in the book, or that they actually plotted doing in real life. But right, yeah, <laughs> a lot of the I guess accelerant for those forces in the book and in real life. Um, comes more recently from uh, the influx of immigration into Germany. Um, you know, there's a lot of these characters talking about Germany's open borders. Yeah. There's a mention of a Nigerian migrant who commits suicide in a in a refugee yes, camp. An camp yeah. Um, yeah. How do you? I don't know. How, how do you? How do you see that in the mix there? Well, I think for some people it's a reason. For other people, it's an opportunity, mm-hmm. and I imagine we'll discuss that a little bit more later with some of the characters specifically. Uh, sure. What I thought was important in this book, particularly, is not to minimize 
not to minimize the concern, which naturally people have different concerns for different reasons, some more valid than others. But obviously, in the last number of years, we've had a significant wave of Islamist terrorism in Europe. People aren't wrong to be worried about that. Uh, people who then jump to everyone who looks like that person is therefore a threat, that's not the greatest response in the world, to put it mildly. Right. Uh, but I think I think there are definitely people who are to ha- who have legitimate concerns with the violence that uh, that Europe has suffered in the last decade, and then there's other people who b- clearly believe that if they uh, if they fan the flames of fear over those dangers, they can themselves rise to power, and you see that a lot in the book with with various uh, of those elements who they don't care a lot about the truth of what's happening they care more about what it can be what what that uh, information can be manipulated to represent and how they can use it to advance their own agenda right so i guess to that point of these you know different uh actors who who use these issues to their own aims there are two antagonists uh German antagonists in the book who really kind of fascinated me, uh, Felix Steiner and Gunter Lohr. So they're, they, I don't know if, I think in our previous conversations, you don't really do quite exact facsimiles <laughs> of real people. Not exact. In, in, no. in your characters. There is a, there is a German politician uh, who Gunter Lohr is uh, yeah. very closely based off of, but it's not right. It's not a one for one facsimile, no. So they don't they don't quite exist, but they feel like they could sort of arise in this kind of scenario at any given time. So tell us a bit more about these two guys and and where they came from and how you developed them. Yeah. So Felix Steiner. I, f- I find him an interesting one. He's, in the book, he's a longshoreman, mm-hmm. uh, he, he, the foreman of a crew of uh, lashers. By lashers, I mean th- they're, the, they're the men who go aboard on a container ship in a container terminal like they have in the port of Hamburg, and they'll, un- they'll either strap in with lashing bars the containers or do the reverse process and, and free them up. And so he, he's very much uh, he's very much a blue collar character. He's very, in a lot of ways, down to earth. And yet he has this kind of raw edge to him, of dissatisfaction with where things are in Germany, and a desire to do something about it. And by do something, I mean do something quite violent. Mm-hmm. And Harry, he is the leader of the cell that Harry is is assigned to infiltrate. And Harry knows going in that uh, Felix Steiner has been connected uh, very loosely to at least uh, three other B- BFV informants who uh, wound up dead. And so you kind of have a bit of a, a bit of an interesting uh, dichotomy with what you see of Steiner, in that he's a very loving family man. He he, you see him at uh, Christmas time at a Christmas celebration in Germany with his his wife and his son and he's brought Harry along and and you you see him as someone who's he's very he's very much a normal guy in a lot of ways and yet because of what Harry knows through the BFV Germany's uh, domestic uh, intelligence agency you know there's another side to Steiner and you continue. You start seeing more and more of that of that side as the book develops, 
and his ties to the far right become more and more clear. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really it's interesting because he does develop a sort of friendship with Harry. He very much kind of sees himself as looking after Harry as a, as a member of his crew and as someone who he believes uh, erroneous, erroneously is on his side. And yet you recognize that there's a ruthlessness, ruthlessness to the man that he would kill Harry in a moment's notice if he believed that he wasn't actually on board with, uh, with the agenda. And it, I also thought it was quite interesting with his reaction. There's a scene fairly early in the book where it has to do, you mentioned the Nigerian man who had committed suicide yep. in an Ankar center, which the Ankar centers are basically the place where uh, migrants are housed. They're, they're, they're camps, essentially, but they're, they're where they're housed by the government as, they, as the government tries to make the decision of whether to allow them to stay in Germany, whether to send them back, so forth. And again, I'm, I'm trying to recall now, because it's been several years since I wrote that scene, but as I, as I recall, that, uh, that suicide was, again, based on uh, some of the news stories I'd read from the Anker Centers, mm-hmm. And uh, they're 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 not uh, they're not places anyone would actually want to live, and one of the German politicians in the book uses that to push back against the administration of the German cons- uh, Chancellor Ursula Drexler to basically say, "Look, you claim to care about these people. You say this is Wilkoman's culture." But these people are dying, and they're dying in filth. And he he pushes back, and it's it's really in in many ways a very deft approach to say, look, you claim to care, but this is what your care looks like. Wouldn't these people be better off back in their own country? Yeah. And when Harry hears it, he thinks that just like this guy's smart, this guy's using a very clever political tactic. It was a very... But he's listening... It was, it, was, it was a very smart kind of tact that he took, just from a purely, like, Machiavellian kind of, you know, I yeah. need to bring people to my side. I remember reading that and just thinking, like, yeah, that's 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 a really powerful and, and dangerous argument. Yeah, and, and you realize as the book goes on that that politician doesn't actually care right. all that much about the migrants, but he's, he's using that as to drive a wedge. And it's 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 very clever, but Steiner hears it, and when he's showing Harry the video, he is livid mm-hmm. because in his mind, what's happening there is not a clever political tactic. In his mind, someone he supported for office has now taken on the arguments of the enemy, and is now putting the welfare of of these migrants who. Steiner, as you as the book rolls on, you do realize he that he basically views uh, these people from Africa and the Middle East as subhuman. Right. He he believes that by by even for the sake of argument, putting their welfare above that of the German, that he he basically comments to Harry. Basically, he 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 delves into the whole uh, great replacement conspiracy theory, and basically says that he's that this politician has joined the op- opposing side in replacing the German people himself. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Another thing that sort of struck me as I was reading this. So this isn't the first time you've had Harry Nichols go behind enemy lines, I guess, and have to you know yeah. infiltrate 
some group uh you've had him infiltrate a a, a jihadist cell before in yeah. in, in Molenbeek yeah. uh, in, present, in, in presence of my enemies yeah. yeah uh so what's the um what's the what's the attraction of that plot device for you i guess to to sort of you know put him really in it as it were well i think in some ways i, I think in some ways the the place he's found himself in the series uh, lends itself in some ways to that, in the sense that he he is very much out in the cold. He doesn't have a lot of options. He fell he fell into the the jihadist cell primarily because he was recovering from wounds received in the previous book. Right. Uh, in in this case, he falls into it because the German government decides they can use him rather than uh, rather than send him uh, extradite him to the U.S. or the U.K. I, I think as a as a plot device, it's interesting because it really less so in this book compared to the previous one, but it really kind of it really kind of places him in a position where he's cut off. He doesn't have a lot of he doesn't have a lot of uh, resources he can turn to or access. In the previous book, he had basically none. In this book, he has almost none he can trust. And I, I enjoyed playing with the differences between those two. Uh, because in this book he does have a lot of uh, a lot of limitations on his uh, his range of movement, his operation, and he has to find a way to try to work with that when he's dealing with people who have no reason to trust him, have no reason to believe that he he won't pursue his own agenda at pretty much the drop of a hat, and really kind of see what he does in that type of scenario when there are instances in the book where he can choose to. Uh, make a run for it to right. just, just drop all of this and say forget this I'm I'm out and uh, yeah it's it's interesting to see his character in those sorts of circumstances versus earlier in the series or in the prequels where he has a bit more of the support network and a bit more of the structure. So Harry is in a quite a delicate mental state in this book, <laughs> owing to past splitting it mildly. Yeah, owing to past traumas. Um, there's yeah. a, a scene where he lashes out at a, at a drunk guy in a crowded uh, market square. Um, yeah. And you later describe it in a way that I, I, it was very well done. You describe it. It's not, there's not this look of anger on his face as he lashes out yeah. at this guy, but it's panic. Um, yeah. I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more about Harry's, what's going on inside Harry's head through this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's been one of the interesting things of developing him as a character is that he, we we got into this a bit in the last uh, the last episode where we were just talking about kind of consequences mattering mm-hmm. in in the series, and one of those consequences for Harry is that what he has done impacts him deeply as it would impact any human being put through the level of trauma that he's been exposed to. And a lot of it has gone above and beyond what his training prepared him for, uh, partic- particularly some of the actions he took undertook while undercover with the jihadists in presence of my enemies. He crossed a lot of incredibly uh, significant lines and left some very significant scars on his own soul in the mm-hmm. process. And this book really is... It's interesting in some ways because he... He is not in a 
good mental state to be thrust back under cover trying to play a role again. He's very much he's very much in a place where he struggles with trying to even process who he is anymore because he's played so many roles, played so many parts and kind of I mean sure he was playing a part when he did those deeds in presence of my enemies, but he still did the deeds. Yeah. And that wall between the person he's pretending to be and the person he actually is, uh, has very much crumbled in this book and bleeds out in some surprising moments, uh, throughout. But I think, I think it really comes down to the, the very human frailty of the character, because for all for all his training, for all that he's done, he still is human, and that's what makes him interesting to the reader. It's what makes him interesting to write about. Uh, I was I was chatting with an author friend of mine the other day, and we were we were talking about it, and just the fact that you can write action day in day out doesn't matter, but spending the time to showcase the humanity of the people on both sides of the gun is what makes a good action thriller really work well. And I think that, I think Harry's emotional state as that he finds himself in, it plays in, plays in that way in a huge role in this book, because you do sense as you go into the final act, there's a lot of reason to believe that even if Harry decides to do the right thing, he may not actually be in a place to do the right thing anymore. Right. In the, in the sense of his skills are very much uh, eroded, that, as the book demonstrates uh, quite aptly. Uh, he's in a very difficult place emotionally and psychologically. And yeah, I mean, when when he <laughs> when the rubber meets the road, you do start to wonder, okay, is he going to be able to pull this out and actually do what he needs to do? Yeah, let's 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 put a pin in that because I want to I want to get sure. back more to to what the future holds for Harry. But the book okay. largely jumps back and forth between various locations in Germany and Russia. So let's head east. Yes, behind the wall. Um, in Russia, in in over the course of the book, we see a lot of infighting between the various Russian security services, the GRU, the FSB. Just in the book's most implausible story plot. Oh yeah, no, I was reading that. I was like, Stephen, Stephen totally jumped the gun on this one. There's no, yeah. there's no infighting yeah, exactly. in, in, inside the no. Russians. No, not at all. No. Um, okay, but so there's a lot of infighting between the GRU, Russian military intelligence, the FSB. Uh, there's some oligarchs thrown in the mix there. Um, Tell us a bit about what's happening in in Russia during this story. So again, kind of on the con- the consequences matter train, uh, you find out in at the pretty much in, when Russia first starts to enter the book that ev- events that took place at, at the end of Presence of Mine Enemies have left the FSB exposed, uh-huh. shall we say. And ironically, it's not a foreign intelligence service that's un- in uncovered this uh, evidence of their misdeeds and is planning to use it to expose them. Right. It's the GR it's the GRU and you say to yourself, well, these two these two intelligence services are working for the same people. Well, then you then you dig into the history and you realize the GRU and the FSB have under the varying guises of both organizations have been 
I don't think it's too big of a stretch to say they've been uh, more or less at, at uh, se- severe odds with each other for about a century at this point. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they were they were they were incredibly hostile to each other in the early days of the of the Soviet Union and continued to be pretty much right up to the present day. And so that it really, I enjoyed playing with that in the story as kind of a way to to showcase the rivalries and the fissures in the Russian state, which have now been kind of uh, exposed more widely to the world in in recent days. Uh, but really, as a way to kind of kind of uh, portray some of that mafia style infighting within the Russian government, and and play it out for dramatic effect with uh, with the various various characters that are involved. So that's a good segue into maybe the next sort of subtopic here. So we are a week out or so from uh, <laughs> you have Jenny Pergozin, the head of the Wagner Group maybe former head of the Wagner group. I, I, I couldn't really tell you. Um, maybe former living being. He might be dead by the time this, this airs. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's hard to know. He's, he's literally, I, I, I kid you not. He's literally was staying in the only hotel in Minsk that the windows didn't open. <laughs> well, I can't say I really blame him. Yeah. But. No, I mean, it still has a roof. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Um, yep. All right, so we're we're a week, we're a week out from Wagner's mutiny. I kind of laid bare all of these divisions and this, you know, mafia state type uh, infighting. What's your what's your take on that? Uh, I th- I think it's it is very hard this this when it's this fresh to really get a a great sense of what's happened, particularly given that. Our uh, our primary sources at the moment are the Belarusians and the, and the Russian government. Yeah, all in, all unimpeachable sources of truth. Oh yeah, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 been it's been a nutty it's been a nutty week. I I I, I do look forward uh, greatly if we ever if we ever find out exactly what the plan was, uh, because it. it it does seem like uh, I, I believe it has been confirmed now that the FSB did uh, did stumble upon uh, news of the coup a couple days before the before it was supposed to kick off, and that uh, I think I've heard it confirmed, or at least confirmed as much as anything can be at this point, that uh, it did have to kick off earlier than was planned. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, it's it was it was stunning to watch. Uh, Stunning to watch uh, Wagner suddenly deciding. No, yep, we're turning around. We're rolling on Moscow, <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah. If, once again, if I put this in a book, how many people would have believed me uh, six months ago? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'm I'm very glad we did not see the Battle of Moscow happen. As am I. I mean, you you see, we you and I discussed this privately, but I mean, you see people on Twitter that are suddenly Prigozhin fans, and you're like, "Wait, ho- hold on a minute. We know we know Putin's a bad guy, but it is possible. I know we're Americans and we think in binary, yeah. but it is possible to have two bad guys. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and in this in this case, they both are and. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no there, there's no good outcome from a Russian state that wakes up on July first and Prigozhin is now the head of the head of the Russian Federation. That's not a good outcome. Yeah. So I guess with all that in mind, you know these developments in in Russia, uh, uh, 
the news breaking about the influence of the German far right inside their special forces community over the course of you writing this book. I mean, you've put me on the therapist couch before over this exact same issue, but <laughs> how, how let's, yeah, that check bounced. By uh, the way. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk a bit about the difficulty of, I guess, keeping these books, these big sprawling, complicated books that are so <laughs> rooted in current events that mimic the real world as it were. How do you mm -hmm. deal with that when, you know, you just turn on your TV and it's like, oh, that kind of changes that kind of changes what I had in mind, you know, hundreds of pages back. Like, wh what do you what do you do? <laughs> I ask this more for myself. Yes, yes. I, I'm, I, I'm, I see the couch behind you. So go, go ahead and go ahead and lay down that. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think to a certain extent, I. I've reconciled myself a long time ago to the fact that if if my my books take long enough to write, mm -hmm. that if I were to literally try to forecast the future, the future would be here before I was done. And if I were to try to do any uh, any real revisions based on that, I'd probably never release a book because and, and also and also if I were to revise everything based on what happens in real life, the the series would have no internal consistency whatsoever because it'd be like oh this happened and oh now this happened and oh and so i try to largely take a stance of going through and trying to the shadow warriors universe i think mirrors the real world in all the kind of major in all the kind of major developments i mean the islamic state exists Yep. Although it it didn't exist for as long as it did in real life, it's there's all sorts of kind of little compromises you have to make for the actual series timeline. But I think ultimately that internal co consistency with the stories is the most important, and then you just try to develop it from there. I mean, if if uh, if if Putin had died this past year, I probably would have just continued writing Soon Dies the Day exactly as I planned to, and then I'll deal with his death down, yeah. down the road. Uh, I've, I've basically accepted that I'm writing in a shadow timeline of the, the near past at this point. And uh, I, I like that because it does give me some ability to kind of weave the fabric of what's actually happened in the real world into yeah. the stories without actually being strictly bound to it in every detail and without trying to get into the the craziness of trying to say, oh, here's what's going to be happening in five years. I mean, the thing I've noticed about a lot of those books that try to do that is they don't age terribly well. Yeah, there's often things that can be pulled out of them. I mean, to, t to, to take uh, to take one of uh, my great heroes of uh, of the genre of the late Tom Clancy. His early stuff, all I, I enjoyed all of his books, quite frankly, but his early stuff that is kind of written in the heat of the Cold War is, in my opinion, his best work. Some of his later stuff that is more speculative fiction, like what could happen, 
it's still good. It's it's well written fiction. I enjoy it. I I liked the Bear and the Dragon. Not everyone not everyone is a fan of that uh, that particular Clancy novel. I enjoy it, but the whole premise that Russia's practically going to ally itself with NATO against China looks absurd from the perspective of even 10, 15, 20 years on. Yeah. It's still a fascinating story, but the the premise has not aged all that well. And I think that I think that is one of the challenges you get into when you try to say, well, here's what could be coming down the pike. Well, humanity's unpredictable and chaos is a thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I know we've definitely talked about this offline. I don't recall if we've said it on at least explicitly in the in the last episode, but you know, we 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 struggled to sort of manage these shadow timelines to incorporate <laughs> real events into yeah. into into our books but when you try to i guess mimic real world events exactly i find this it's it handicaps you a bit because you're not able to do big bold dramatic things like yeah. you know like 90s clancy like a major war between russia and china an ebola outbreak a nuclear bomb goes off the Super Bowl, <laughs> and then 9/11 still happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, the butterfly effect would just, just it just goes up mm-hmm. in flames at that point. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, like I say, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't mean you can't still tell a very entertaining story. Yeah. But at, at some point, if you're trying to assess what the real world implications of that would all, I mean, for example, to take my to take my own series as as a, a, a factor in this. I have wrestled in the last year or so with, uh, in Day of Reckoning, uh, there was a major terrorist attack on American soil on Christmas Eve in Las Vegas, killed hundreds of Americans in the downing of an airliner and an attack on a casino on the Strip in which a nerve agent was released. And so I, I, I admit that I have wrestled somewhat with, in an America in which that's just taken place and in an America in which it's known that those attackers, although they were funded by uh, a Saudi Arabian uh, prince, but still most of those attackers came from the AFPAC region. Yeah. Do we actually withdraw from Afghanistan if something like that happens? And I think, I think I've made a fairly compelling case in the book, in the books and the series that we do uh given uh, to a certain extent the political fatigue and the leadership that's represented as being in charge in America i think i ca- i think i can make the case that we do but you do you do have to think about that sort of thing like i have literally just had uh, a lesser version of 911 take place and then i'm going to go with the real world yes we pulled out of afghanistan how do how do you reconcile those things and i think they are reconcilable but you have to put in the work right how so? Say more about that, if you can. Well, just in, like I say, in, in kind of trying to lay the groundwork of what what is the political environment, what is the attitude of the country? I mean, it, it, it is the country kind of taking the attitude of, number one, it wasn't actually a 9-11 scale attack. Yeah. Thousands of people did not die. Uh, is the country taking the stance of, well, we had troops there and it still happened, therefore... Are they actually doing any good there? 
I think you just you have to you have to process through some of those questions and as much as you can try to work them into the story. And uh, I, I I don't fully have the answer to this yet because I've not actually published uh, some of the some of the books where I start working into that. But I I think that is that is important to try to to try to explain to readers who and and quite frankly I mean it's certainly possible that most readers will read the story and say oh yep this happened and this happened in real life therefore. Uh, and and they may not even question it but for those who are thinking about it i think it's important to uh it's important to work do enough of the work to indicate that it did cross the author's mind too <laughs> so i mean i i describe active measures this way a lot and i this is definitely true with with the shadow warrior series too that it's it's it looks very similar to our world mm. to the point that yeah. 99% of the time it, it looks exactly the same, but it's a little bit different. Do you find that readers are able to, I guess, take themselves out of out of reality and sort of go with the flow there? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe so. I think I think most people are are very much in it for the story, and then kind of try to uh, try to mesh the two in their head uh, to whatever extent that is possible, as long as you're not. Be becoming deliberately outlandish uh, with doing things like Russian infighting and other implausible ideas that we know could never happen in the real world. No, never, never. I mean, <laughs> hey, two weeks ago, if you had told me that 20,000 troops would have marched on Moscow nearly unopposed, I would have, like, yeah. there's there's no way. There's no way. <laughs> and and that's, that's something else, I think, uh, when you were talking about how uh, writing, trying to mirror the real world in, exactly and and how it can can become a bit of a narrative trap. One thing I was thinking when you were saying that is, I think part of that for us is that we do not, we are not omniscient. We do not know why everything happens. Right. I mean, it's it's quite possible you and I will go to our graves without having any actual concrete understanding of why Evgeny Prigozhin decided to do what he did. That's a serious and what bummer. his act. And it is, oh, it is, it is. That will that will give me sleepless nights. <laughs> and uh, and wh- and what his actual plan was. And so, if you and I were try were to try to write that, uh, I have no I have no doubt that we could we could come up with a very entertaining facsimile, a novel of the what if what could have happened. But at the end of the day, if we're trying to, if we're not giving ourselves the narrative freedom to say to 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 change the actual story, we will change the actual story in some way, yeah. be, simply out of our own ignorance because we don't actually know. We're not inside his head, thank God, right? And we're not, we're not inside the heads of anyone else who was directly involved. Uh, so I do think you kind of have to give yourself a bit of. Uh, a bit of freedom in playing with reality and say, well, this didn't happen, but change a few things and maybe it could have. Yeah. So I guess this is probably a good time to get into the future as we, you know, <laughs> talked about the, the perils of, of prediction. Um, yes. I don't want to spoil the book at all. I'm very kind of, I, I, I don't want to do that, but what's, what's, what's the future got in store for Harry Nichols? So the the book, uh, like I said, I I too don't want to give away too yeah. much of the ending. Uh, but one one of the challenges 
in this book is that he is very much under the thumb of the German security services, and if he steps out of line, he will be extradited uh, back to the U.S., the U.K. Uh, heck, they'd probably extradite him to France if they realized that France wanted him, right. but uh, <laughs> no, no one knows that at the moment, including the French. So Harry, at the end, at the end of the book, um, he manages to find a way out, and he finds himself uh, leaving Germany mm-hmm. through means that will be left uh, left unmentioned, mm-hmm. and the, we w- we will have to see exactly where he crops back up, but. Uh, I can t- I can say that uh, the next book will find him in Turkey, looking uh, looking up an old friend whom he believes can help him, and the the sadness of that uh, that reality is that uh, he will find that uh, when he reaches out to this individual for help. Uh, they are not uh, very receptive to that, which given Harry's record of the past few books, it's it's maybe not surprising that they would they would not want a lot to do with him at this moment. Yeah. But more to the point, not only can they not help him, they cannot help themselves. They are they are in over their heads in a bad way. And they're uh their concern over Harry arriving on their doorstep is not just the fact that he's an international fugitive. They also have uh, dealings of their own that they would really rather not have scrutiny brought to. And <laughs> he brings a fair bit of scrutiny with him, so yeah. he's, not a, he's not the most welcome of guests. Yeah. Uh, but that, that book will we'll see Harry... That book will see Harry take on uh, a, lo- a lot of the book will take place in Istanbul as it's uh, planned now at least subject to change but it will see him go the extra mile in trying to rescue a friend only by the end of the story to realize that friend may not have been worth rescuing uh, because he's he's he becomes more aware of some things readers have known for quite some time. Uh, but he, but he's operating, he's operating out of friendship and out of his, uh, out of his loyalty to someone who's, uh, who he had known back in the old days. And, uh, it it should be, it should be an interesting, it should be an interesting story because that friend's actions uh, bring down a lot of heat upon Istanbul. It's always been a a center, a city of spies and it's going to be never more, Never more one than in My Brother's Keeper, which is the next the next book. So okay. So yeah, that's that's where we'll see uh, that's where we'll see him when we pick up the the story next. I do have uh, do have a couple of projects to tackle in the meantime uh, with the Shadow Warriors. Uh, one which will feature uh, Jack Richards, uh, Harry's old team member, who's now starred in several uh, kind of companion novels to the series. Uh, the next one, Sideshow, is uh, very much a chase after a somewhat Snowden-esque character who uh, absconds with a massive amount of sensitive NSA data and uh, runs to Southeast Asia. 
after having uh, made contact with uh, some intelligence elements of the PLA. And uh, so that that will be that will be an interesting uh, that will be an interesting chase as uh, Richards and company try to retrieve him and more importantly his data before uh, uh, adversarial elements get their hands on it. And then uh, the next the next story where we'll actually see Harry is another prequel that I really I, I want to take Harry back into the the early days of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Because readers know from Embrace the Fire that he was there in the early days, the first wave in after 9/11, and I really want uh, I really want to kind of take readers on that journey of how how the whole effort began, and uh, kind of go back to that time where things looked a lot more clear cut than they do today, but part of the reason they're the way they are today is we thought they were clear-cut back then. <laughs> How do you think you will uh, tackle that with the hindsight that we have now of knowing how our adventure in Afghanistan ends IRL. Yeah, I, th- I think that will be an interesting challenge. I've not started writing the book yet. Uh-huh. Uh, I think probably the biggest challenge will be trying to put Harry in the post immediately post 9/11 mindset without that hindsight. Yeah. Because there's there, there's something I've noticed and it's 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 I think in some ways a bit of a failing of historical fiction in the sense that it's very easy to want your protagonist to be the smart one. The guy who can see that it's going to go wrong. Yep. And I really don't think particularly given how young Harry is at the time, I really don't think that kind of insight is natural, and so that's I think one of the big the, one of the big challenges I w- I want to try to uh, guard against. Now he will be going in with uh, John Patrick Flynn, J.P. Flynn, his old uh, agency mentor who was in Afghanistan in the eighties. So he will have some regional insight that the average person would not have but i still i think the biggest challenge will be trying to keep true to that that original uh mindset and not not letting it bleed over uh too much but it, it i th- i think it'll be a challenging story to tell and yet uh i think it'll be a good it'll be a good place to take the series you uh i was going to ask you this offline but you invoked the pla a second ago so i'll just ask you here <laughs> uh anything coming up in the pipeline with the Chinese that like really focuses on the Chinese, maybe something set there. Well, <laughs> not nothing actually. Nothing actually set in China. Okay. Uh, Sideshow will involve uh, the PLA quite heavily, uh, but yeah, pretty much mo- most of the book's action will take place outside China in uh, Southeast Asia. Anything else you wanna you wanna add before we wrap for today? I I think that that probably about covers it. I think we've uh, we've covered things quite uh, quite thoroughly. So uh, so yeah, I appreciate you having me on to talk about the new book and uh, and uh, discuss all the nitty gritty of it as ever. Yeah, as always, <laughs> it is always good to have you here. Um, it's a pleasure, Matt. Thank you. So the book is soon dies the day. Shadow Warriors number twelve. Stephen, where can uh, listeners? Uh, get it if they don't have it already they can go to amazon and all the whole shadow warrior series of it is available there uh they can also go to my website which is uh, stephenenglandbooks.com so 
Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.